this idea that government is beholden to the people, that it has no other source of power except the sovereign people, is still the newest and the most unique idea in all the long history of man's relation to man. I think that we have a core set of values that are enshrined in our constitution, in our body of law, that are exceptional. What our framers debated that, that, that whole summer in Philadelphia in 1787. Our Constitution begins with the word, we the people of the United States. That is what it means to say that we have a government of laws and not of men. Welcome back to Constitutional Conventions, the official podcast of the Yale Law School Federal Society. My name is John Lefeld, and I'll be your host, and I'm joined by my co-host, Robert Capitolupo. And this week, we'll be joined by a really special guest, Sharif Gurgis. Sharif joined Notre Dame Law School in 2021 as an associate professor. Prior to joining Notre Dame, he practiced law at Jones Day in Washington, D.C. He's clerked for Justice Samuel Alito and Judge Thomas Griffith of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Completing his Ph.D. at Philosophy at Princeton, Gurgis earned his J.D. at Yale Law School, where he served as an editor of the Yale Law Journal. Sharif is an incredibly talented legal academic with a very bright future, one of the rising stars in the conservative legal movement, and has helped co-author two books, What is Marriage, Man and Woman, a Defense, with Robert P. George and Ryan T. Anderson and debating religious liberty and discrimination with, again, Ryan T. Anderson and John Corvino. We're really lucky to have him. We're going to have a great conversation today. Thanks for having me. So, so Sharif, uh, you don't know this, but you and I are, are two of like the only Princeton conservatives, which is a bit of an oxymoron these days. Uh, you got your BA there, or I guess AB is what they, they gave out and still do. And you graduated and you finished up quite quickly uh, this book with, with Robert P. George and, and Ryan T. Anderson. Echoing, I think I'll say, and maybe you're too humble to say, uh, another very uh, intellectually powerful conservative figure who, who published a famous book a year after graduating undergrad. That guy went to Yale, and his name was William F. Buckley Jr. Uh, so <laughs> I think you're following good footsteps. But you know, just just for the listeners' benefit, maybe you just wouldn't mind talking through what you've been up to since then, and, and where you hope to be. You're now at Notre Dame at a great spot, but filling through what, what what's been motivating you, what your passions are, and what your interests are in the law. Sure. So I. Um I went on to do a master's degree at Oxford and a PhD back at Princeton, which I actually still have to finish up, but God willing, will happen the next year, um, in philosophy. So a lot of my interests are at the intersection of law and philosophy. I did um, clerk for two years in D.C. I, I practiced law in D.C. for a bit after that and then um, ended up at Notre Dame Law School very happily. And I, you know, I'm writing on, I, t- I teach jurisprudence, criminal law, and uh, constitutional law. And I'm writing on the kinds of topics you would guess from that description that I'm, I would be writing about. Um, and the, the next few articles I have coming out are looking at uh, free exercise doctrine. I'm, I'm working on another piece on post-ratification, the reliance on post-ratification history in constitutional reasoning, reasoning generally, and, uh, and as well as deeper political theory debates about civil liberties and, and when they should get protection and why. In light of those interests, it's really great that you just came and spoke in person at the Yale Federal Society at the chapter here with Andy Koppelman on, on a great debate about Dobbs, Roe, and the future of the abortion movement and, and pro-life movement. I just wanted to ask you what you thought the big takeaways were, maybe what the most important things you said were for the benefit of the listener. Sure. Well, we talked about a number of issues. Um, we talked a bit about the merits of the legal reasoning in Dobbs. Uh, and there, I think that 
you know, the, you can divide it into two, right? So there's the stare decisis analysis. And I think that's been pretty well understood and the arguments for and against the court's analysis in that area are clear. Um, on the merits question narrowly construed, whether Roe was wrong, whether there is an unwritten right to an abortion under the Constitution, rightly understood from first principles. I think the court's reasoning is, is, is fairly easy to summarize. So I was recently asked, you know, isn't it ironic that the court on one day in the Bruin case said that you can't regulate the right to carry arms in the way that the New York had done in that case, but on the next day says that you can regulate abortions and regulate them pretty massively. And I was trying to think about what it would take for the two cases to be on a par. And I thought, well, for that to be true, for them to be closely analogous, it would have to be, first of all, of course, that there is no Second Amendment right since there's no written right to an abortion either. But also as a matter of history, it would have to be the case that really from the dawn of the common law in England until basically 1960 or just before Roe, not a single English case or state case or federal case or statute or legal treatise or law review article going out on a limb had ever suggested that there was a right to an abortion, that on the contrary, abortion was massively regulated at common law in every one of those Anglo-American jurisdictions for every one of those 800 plus years. Um, And that those common law regulations were uh, reinforced with criminal penalties by statute that expanded those criminal penalties all the way to conception onward while we're in the in the Second Amendment context to, to every form of keeping and bearing arms so that by 1858, half the states, by 1868, three quarters of the states, by 1877, all but two of the states, soon after that, all of them had um, criminal penalties for every form of keeping and carrying, that those criminal penalties persisted in all but four of the states until 1960, that even as of 1973, two thirds of the states had equally broad Um, criminal prohibitions on keeping and carrying. And that in that same year, seven justices said that we're going to strike down the laws of all 50 states because our conception of liberty under the 14th Amendment requires a right to keep and bear arms. Then the two cases as a matter of text and history would be on a par. And I think that suggests the main motivation and the the main analysis that motivated the majority in finding that there was, at least as a matter of first principles, no deeply rooted right to and abortion, though I will make one caveat to that. I think that all of the regulations, both the common law uh, regulations and the statutory uh, proscriptions that Dobbs runs through, every single one of them at every moment in our history did leave an exception, um, recognize a right to procedures that were needed to save the mother's life. So I do think there is a, that even based on the the very um, logic of Dobbs and its emphasis on deep roots in history, there is a constitutional right to those procedures. And then other than that, um, that at least as a matter of history, there isn't. The dissent's main disagreement with that history, I think there's really only one point of disagreement with it. So the dissent obviously objects to the narrow focus on history in that sense and objects um, to the court's stare decisis analysis. But in terms of factual disagreements about the history, the only one that I have seen is the suggestion that at least at common law, so before the 19th century statutes started expanding restrictions, um, at least at common law, before quickening, before fetal movement could be felt, um, there was a right, a common law right to an abortion because abortions at that stage were not criminal. 
And therefore, the majority opinion was wrong to say that even those early abortions at common law were unlawful. But I think that's a misreading of the, of the historical evidence as well. So the, it's true that they weren't criminal before quickening, but they were unlawful in the sense that they were treated as a predicate for felony murder, um, which is something that our law does. You know, So under that doctrine, of course, even though murder, conviction for murder, murder normally requires knowledge or intent to kill or cause serious bodily injury, there's one exception which is if you were committing a felony to begin with, then no matter how accidentally or innocently you cause a death, you're on the hook for a murder. And uh, the early common law with even early abortions treated abortion that way. It said that it was to no lawful purpose, as one of the sources said, or of unlawful intent. And for that reason, could be a predicate for murder liability. And there were other res- legal restrictions it was subjected to. It could be, you know, a house that performed that that offered abortions was subject to summary closure as a disorderly house. Um, contracts to perform abortions were void for illegality, uh, and so on. So uh, with that in place, I think the historical analysis in Dobbs is quite strong. Then the most most of the disagreement will then be on its uh, stare decisis analysis. One thing that we didn't see and wasn't really alluded to all that much is kind of a. I think nascent argument in certain parts of the conservative legal movement related to fetal personhood. Uh, you know, you, sometimes some people think that Justice Thomas would go for something like that. It doesn't really seem to have been all that present. Do you have any thoughts on that part of, of either the opinion or Justice Thomas's concurrence? Yeah, I think that it's uh, understandable that it wasn't a part of the discussion. So Mississippi was stipulating or was not taking a position on the question of whether prenatal human life is a person, our lives are persons under the 14th Amendment so that um, it's actually forbidden for states to permit abortion under the amendment. I think that, so the parties were agreed that that's not an issue. The question presented wasn't about it. And the question presented didn't require the court to answer that question, um, though it was raised in a, to me, surprising number of amicus briefs on Mississippi's side. So I think it will be a part of the discussion uh, and already is to some extent. And, and it's been elevated by, uh, by those briefs. And what do you make of that argument? I, I guess sort of the easiest refutation of it is that there are no common law crimes created by the a Constitution. So it's not obvious that the original public meaning of the 14th Amendment would suggest that it was implicit that abortion would be criminalized at the federal level. How do you square the amicus briefs arguments uh, in light of that general norm? Yeah, there's so many moving parts to these debates. It's hard to get a handle on. So one question, obviously, is what equal protection of the laws means. And there is a serious originalist argument, though not not by any means the dominant view, that uh, equal protection of the laws just meant the protection of the... Uh, the the protection of the laws that protect your person uh, against violence, basically, or that that was a core meaning of um, equal protection or the enforcement by the executive of the protective laws when the victim was white, as w- black, as well as when the victim was white and so on. And then the question would be, what does person mean? And um, a lot of the, the briefs focused on that from a historical perspective. So arguing that in the context in legal context, discussing the basic rights of persons in 1868 or in the lead up to it, uh, that person was understood to cover any human being at any stage of development. 
But, you know, there are, there are also other conceptions of what the 14th Amendment is about, as you're pointing out. And on those, even if the word person or the phrase any person generally had that scope, it wouldn't be obvious that the upshot was uh, what the personhood defenders think it is. I think the next logical question that comes out of all of this on, on both sides of the ball, uh, as it relates to the discussion around abortion, is how state regulation, which now I think has a wider scope of possibilities, is going to impact religious freedom. So I think naturally in the historical context, religious freedom has been on the pro-life side more 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 so than than not. But recently we've seen quite a few cases, and, and I think you've talked about this in, in your writing and your books, but, but we've seen a, a few cases, which I think of, of somewhat dubious merit to some degree, that claim the religious freedom argument actually is a pro-choice argument. Uh, you know, there, there was the cosmic Jews in Florida over the summer that filed suit saying their, their religious practice requires abortions at certain points that might run afoul of, of Florida's new abortion laws. Uh, and, and, and you just wrote this really great article in the Virginia Law Review about substantial burdens and, and religious freedom more broadly. So what do you see as the interaction between Dobbs, kind of incipient state regulations, some of, some of the ones that have already gone into place and ones that might be considered, and religious freedom arguments either either for or against kind of the, the regulation of abortion? Yeah, so the, the hook for a lot of these discussions most recently is the question of whether in a state that generally bans abortion, there is under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act type statutes that several states have adopted, or maybe even depending on developments in free exercise law under the Constitution, whether there would be a, an entitlement to an exemption for those who say that the abortion regulation substantially burdens their religion. And the idea is some people think that some people would say, look, from my, from my perspective, the faith requires that I um, perform an abortion when women need it under XYZ conditions, at least, and there's a substantial burden. So one question is, is there a substantial burden uh, in those scenarios? And the other question is, is the strict scrutiny that gets triggered by that going to be satisfied? On the first point, there has been a lot of debate. I, I myself think it's entirely possible that there would be cases where there really is a substantial burden. So there's a lot of debate about how to understand that term in the Virginia um, piece that you mentioned. The way I propose to understand it is a kind of middle way. So some people say, look, anything that's religiously motivated counts as something that if the government prevents you from doing it, it's substantially burden your religion. Um, and I think that's too general. But then on the other hand, some say, well, it's got to be something that your religion requires that's legally forbidden before we'll say there's a substantial burden. And I think that's too narrow. Um, I think that if you look at the way that protections against incidental burdens work with other civil liberties, the best way to understand the trigger for heightened scrutiny is that heightened scrutiny will apply if the law has denied you some means of exercising the liberty without leaving you adequate alternative means. And then I suggest that in the religious context, adequate alternative means an alternative that's not much more costly in material terms and that your religion regards as more or less interchangeable with the forbidden option. So as long as your religion recommends, it thinks that there would be a genuine spiritual or religious loss in not getting to perform the abortion, then there could be a substantial burden on your faith. So now the question shifts entirely to whether strict scrutiny or whatever other heightened scrutiny implied by the applied by the statute is satisfied. And there the question would be, typically, is there a compelling interest in the states preventing this particular abortion? And 
The states will say, of course there is, because we think innocent human life is at stake and the protection of innocent human life is a is a compelling interest. Um, one counter argument has been, well, that requires the courts to adopt the idea that um, the unborn are constitutional persons. And I don't think that's right. So I don't think there's any general rule that says that a compelling interest has to be something as important as the prevention of homicide of a constitutional person, right? In the education context, diversity in the classroom is a compelling interest. That's something that is less weighty than uh, preventing the homicide of a constitutional person. So I don't think that's correct. Now, some have said, well, that Dobbs itself rules out the idea that the interest in fetal life is compelling because it just calls it legitimate. But it only calls it legitimate because that was the only question at issue once the court decided that rational basis review would apply, once the court decided that any abortion regulation should be upheld as long as it's reasonably related to a legitimate state interest. Now the question is, what are legitimate interests? But the fact that the court lists uh, the respect for and preservation of prenatal life at all stages of development as a legitimate interest doesn't really foreclose it later saying that it's also a compelling interest. Yeah, I think you hit on something really important in this discussion that I think gets lost a lot in the popular press as it relates to the free exercise clause claims, which is a lot of groups claim a religious burden and they don't really go through the kind of doctrine when they make those claims. So they kind of get past the first hurdle pretty easily. The kind of Thomas v. Review Board case, which said, you know, the belief has to be sincerely held. And I think most religious claims, almost all, really pass that muster under a pretty lenient definition. And that that really ties closely into what you were saying before. When people say that the court is adopting some kind of religious definition of personhood, in Thomas v. Review Board, the, the, the basic holding is basically that we're not competent to judge issues of religion, so we're kind of take at face value. This is a religious question that you're that you're asserting has been burdened. Then we get into the substantial burden question, which is what you were talking about before. But that's not all that you have to do if you're asserting a religious freedom claim, and that's the last part that you were talking about, just to spell out the doctrine for for the listener, because you have to then prove if you're the state uh, that you're serving a compelling interest. And that's kind of the, the last hook, which, which as it relates to, say, the Florida case of the cosmic Jews, even if you were to accept the religious practice requiring abortion, even if you were to say that the Florida regulation substantially burdens it, which I think is, is somewhat of a live question, given that the litigation hasn't been completed, you then still have to say that even though it's been burdened, Florida's substantial burden still doesn't satisfy a compelling interest. So it's a really uphill battle, I think, for a lot of these groups that are, that are kind of asserting religious freedom claims on, on the abortion question. Yeah, and I think, you know... Th- So I've got my view about how substantial burden should be understood. And on that view, as I mentioned, I think there will be a substantial burden in a lot of these cases, but that's my view. It's not, um, it's not official doctrine and it's not, and there isn't really any clear doctrine from the Supreme Court on what counts as a substantial burden or on what counts as a compelling interest, assuming there is a substantial burden. And we want to know that. And because results oriented or motivated reasoning is so hard to resist in the abortion context. I think you'll see courts um, manipulating or exploiting or giving into the ambiguities on both of those questions and directions that track policy preferences, unfortunately. In your view, does the challenges that certain religious views may face because of the change in abortion law in Dobbs, does that to you create a argument in favor of Smith, which of course is the Supreme Court case that says that strict scrutiny will not be triggered if a law that burdens religion is 
neutral and generally applicable. It seems to me that if we were to return to a Thomas V. Review Board type regime, you would see many more of these cases and you would see many more individualized exceptions on potentially precarious grounds. Now, that may be something that on the whole is favorable, but in my view, it seems like these examples show what Smith was really trying to get at, that people should not be able to avoid otherwise neutral laws um, on on these grounds. Yeah, so I, if it turned out that there were substantial burdens imposed by some of these abortion regulations, or even if it turned out that the that, that under the right analysis, even of the second step of whether there's a compelling interest in accepting the burden, um, an exemption is warranted. Um, I wouldn't take the you know policy valences of the outcomes in those kinds of cases as a reason for or against Smith. So I think you know you should evaluate Smith by whatever your theory of interpretation is. If you're an originalist. Um, if you if you're a kind of common law constitutionalist who thinks it's about incremental changes in precedent, you should just evaluate on those and then let the, let the chips fall where they may in terms of what what policy outcomes that leads to in particular cases. I think if you were worried about if you thought that these cases accentuated the case for Smith, someone who was in favor of Smith would say, look, they just accentuate how difficult it is to do the kind of balancing that courts had to do before Smith and that courts will have to do again after Smith if it goes away. And if you look at Scalia's opinion, there's not much originalist analysis in it. It's almost entirely driven by a fear that courts can't handle the balancing of the burden on the religious claimant and the benefit to the public of enforcing the law without either making stuff up, uh, or as he thought they did in a lot of balancing context, or um, encroaching on you know, answering religious questions that courts have no business answering. Now, I disagree with him on that. I don't think that those problems are inevitable under the pre-Smith regime. But I suspect if you thought that the that these new battles um, sharpened the case for Smith, that's the way you'd, you'd be thinking of it. So we've been discussing the potential burdens that the ruling in Dobbs may have on religious people. I want to shift gears and now talk about the argument that the ruling in Dobbs bears a particular burden on women and women alone. Uh, there is a substantial literature on, on this question arguing that under the Equal Protection Clause, strict scrutiny should be triggered because women are disproportionately affected by this, by a law that criminalizes abortion. And I know that you have written a lot on this topic, uh, so I'd love to hear what your argument is against the Equal Protection Claim. Sure. Yeah. So I actually only just wrote a short piece about it and really only tried to make one point about it. Uh, somewhat limited point. So you're, I think you're right that in the wake of Roe, a lot of legal scholars and others who thought that Roe's outcome was right, but that its reasoning was poor, sought to reground it on stronger footing. And the most, I think it's fair to say that the most common alternative has been an equal protection argument that basically usually takes one of two forms. One form is the states that are banning abortions or that would be banning abortions, are accepting a burden on women that they would never accept 
on men if the tables were turned. Um, and another form they take is that these abortion regulations are not based only on concern for fetal life. They are also based on suspect judgments or stereotypes about women or women's role or women's dignity. And in either of those ways, they violate the Equal Protection Clause. I think that the, the, the goal of the argument was in a way to, to make progress over Roe's analysis. But I, so the, and the limited point I make in these pieces, in the piece um, that you mentioned, is that I don't think they do. I think they depend on what was regarded as the weakest premise in Roe's reasoning. So these equal protection arguments actually just rise or fall with Roe. And what is that premise and why do I think that? The premise that John Hart Ely and Lawrence Tribe and others found so hard to credit in Roe, these are obviously liberal constitutional critics of Roe's reasoning, was the idea that, just to put it sort of uh, pointedly, that the due process clause somehow takes a position on fetal moral worth, that the due process clause itself requires states to discount fetal worth up until viability, even though that discounting of fetal worth is found nowhere in the text, obviously, but also the history or traditions of the country. Um, That seemed made up and pulled out of nowhere. But I think you have to say something similar to buy the equal protection argument, even though that's not obvious on the surface. Why? So just take, at a very general level, if if you thought otherwise, if you thought that, no, as far as the Constitution is concerned, states are allowed to think that the fetus is an innocent human life. It's just that there's this other problem with their law, and that's what makes it an equal protection violation. Once you grant the first part, I think you can't say the second. So um, to make it concrete, a lot of the arguments are, as I mentioned, of the form that, look, the state says it's concerned about fetal life, but if you look closely at its other policies, there are lots of other areas where it's not doing enough to protect human, to, to promote human life. Therefore, we have to posit that it's motivated also by some suspect attitude toward women. But in order to make that argument work, you would have to identify areas where the state is failing to protect human life in a way that is morally comparable to withdrawing the protection of homicide laws from a whole class of human beings. And it's very hard to show that. You know, the, the kinds of policies that people point to to say that these states don't actually care about human life enough are things like, you know, the failure to, to pay for you know, certain kinds of medical coverage, health insurance coverage, things like that. And those, you you know, whatever you think of them, they're not on a par with withdrawing protection of homicide laws from persons. So as long as these states are allowed to think that the unborn are persons, then they don't actually have the kind of double standard the argument depends on. Or take the other form of the argument, oh, the, the, the state is accepting burdens on women that it wouldn't accept on men. To do that, to show that, you would have to show that these states, these these pro-life or would-be pro-life states, are lifting a burden from men, but not from women, at the cost of something comparable to allowing the intentional killing of innocents. Um, and you can't find a case like that. And therefore, you don't have the analog that, set, that shows that there's really a double standard being imposed. Last quick point on this. A lot of people say, look, the suspect judgment that's underlying abortion regulations is the stereotype or the, the expectation, the gendered expectation that women ought to be mothers or that women ought to carry their kids to term. But if, you know, that's one thing is there's a historical question about whether that's the exact judgment that's underlying it. But what if it turned out that that judgment was itself just based on two others, which is that the unborn are moral persons and that parents have a duty not 
have a duty to bear the ordinary burdens of supporting the life of their children or of not not causing their children's death. If those two beliefs together are the cause of the judgment that uh, women ought to bear the children to term at least. And the second thing, it doesn't seem very suspect, the idea that parents have this responsibility towards their kids, then you have to impugn the first judgment, the judgment that states are allowed to think that these entities are kids, that they are persons. Um, so either, no matter which way you go, I think you still have to defend the premise that everybody thought Roe had a hard time defending, which is that states are not allowed to think that these are moral persons. So on the higher substantive due process grounds, which the court in Dobbs rejected, um, there was an interesting hypothetical that was raised by Professor Akil Amar in an episode of his podcast that asked, and I'm paraphrasing here, but asked that, let's say that there's a scenario where a state passes a law that compels a father to donate an organ to his infant, an innocent life, in order to save the life of that child. Would that be permissible as uh, as a substantive due process argument? Or what distinction do you think that case has from what was at issue in Roe? Yeah, so if you, it depends on how much stock you put in the surface language of some of the, the history and tradition at stake. So the, um, if you look at the Glucksberg opinion, which is, of course, the kind of master statement of the deeply rooted in history and traditions test for unwritten substantive due process rights, um, that case involved assisted suicide and a claim to a constitutional right to assisted suicide. The court rejected that claim, and the court said there is a right, a deeply rooted in our history right, to refuse medical treatment. And that right is rooted in a right against battery, basically, against unwanted uh, or harmful or offensive touching. So that analysis suggested there was actually an asymmetry between requiring an invasive medical procedure and forbidding a medical procedure. And if you think there's anything to that, uh, or you think that that tradition, whether it's morally compelling or not, should control for purposes of courts that are just applying these unwritten rights, then you think the answer is that's unconstitutional. So forcing a medical procedure um, is unconstitutional, but that that doesn't imply that forbidding a medical procedure that causes a death is unconstitutional. One thing that I find interesting especially related to, to the, the Glucksberg decision and uh, the actual, I think, factual reality of, of current laws in the different sta- in the several states is that, I don't know if it's a majority, but, but quite a few of them do not criminalize abortion actions that women take necessarily, or in addition to those criminal liabilities, they also have liabilities related to physicians. And so I think that opens up a whole host of other legal questions that are kind of beyond substantive due process and touch other constitutional canons. So one thing that I've been thinking about a lot, and you may it may just be something that, that, that hasn't really come across your mind, is let's say state A has, uh, let's just say, a total ban on abortion. Let's just, for the sake of the hypothetical, make it really simple. And uh, a, a woman in state A calls a doctor in state B, which allows abortions all the way up until birth. You know, completely legal in state B. And doctor in state B 
prescribes you know abortifacient medications and ships them across state lines uh, into state A, where the woman then takes the, the the pills and has you know an abortion. And let's just say you know for for to make this somewhat easier that in state A the act of actually getting an abortion isn't a criminal offense. It's it's purely to on doctors who who you know prescribe medications or perform procedures. So I guess in my mind the main constitutional concern there is actually a dormant commerce clause concern. Uh, but I'm kind of curious to hear because that 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 hypothetical seems a little extreme in a lot of ways, but kind of rhymes quite a bit with a lot of the questions that we're having now about women who travel interstate, who are prescribed medications interstate. And I'm kind of curious what you think the front of the abortion question is on more commerce clause related grounds than, than 14th Amendment grounds. Yeah, I think that there are basically two kinds of discussions arising about um, regulation of medications by, you know, can, can Mississippi forbid uh, people to ship abortion drugs into the state or to use them once they're in the state? One is the dormant commerce clause question. And the other is whether FDA approval of these drugs preempts state attempts to ban the drugs. On the second question, I think the answer is likely no. There's a case from the Supreme Court a few years ago called Wyeth v. Levine, where the court says that that it would be an overreading of the FDA's authority to think that when it deems an when it deems any a, a given drug safe or or a protocol or. or what have you, um, that that is re- preventing the states from adopting even more restrictive um, requirements or rules. And I think that would carry over here. Um, here, it, there isn't even a disagreement between the state and the federal government over whether the drugs are safe. The disagreement is over whether they're morally legitimate. On the Dormant Commerce Clause question, so it, it seems like the, the mine run of Dormant Commerce Clause cases and the, the heartland of its concerns, just to use all the lawyer metaphors, is anti-protectionism. That uh, the court wants to make sure that states aren't privileging their own produced merchandise or goods or services over those that are coming in from out of state. But obviously that would not be the concern here. Mississippi doesn't want you using abortion drugs, period. Then the question is whether there is still a residual question under Dormant Commerce Clause about whether the burdens imposed on interstate uh, commerce are undue for the for the, given the local benefits or asserted local benefits of the of the regulation. That's a very wooly um, question, and I think you could you know you could argue it in different directions. But I suspect that if it comes to that, the Supreme Court would likely say no. There's no Dormant Commerce Clause problem, but that's a guess. We've spoken quite a bit about the past of the conservative legal movement and the last really 40 years of it has been energized by the Roe question. And part of that has led to, I think, a sharp criticism among some members of the conservative legal movement that up until June made it seem like the entire movement was uh, tilting after windmills. And now that it's happened, so so I guess that has been, I think, the real critique of originalism among some, which is if originalism can't give us the goods that we want, is it worth saving? And that's led, I think, to the rise of common good constitutionalism in some ways and and other variants of that thought. So this is all a big windup to ask you, Sharif, given Dobbs and given everything we've been talking about and given the, the state of play more broadly, how do you see the next 5, 10, 15 years of the conservative legal movement or even just the, the lawyers on the right more broadly, if you don't even want to use that terminology, playing out? And that can be you know, a number of things, but I'm kind of curious, somebody, somebody with your expertise, where you see things heading. 
Yeah. So um, just to give the listeners a primer, if they're not steeped in it, the common, common good constitutionalism is the label often used for the view that the, well, for a bunch of views, but at a, at a, at a, in just in, in broad brush strokes, the idea first that um, law and politics are for the sake of the common good of the community, which means that they have a point, a purpose, a natural natural purpose and justification, and that law in the most full-throated sense ought to be substantively just. It has to be genuinely serving the common good. And then a bunch of ancillary views about legal interpretation, which are disputed. Exactly what set of views are at issue is a matter of dispute, depending on who you ask and when. But the but one suggestion, at least, is that um, courts either cannot or should not be rigorously amoral when they're doing constitutional interpretation. That either just because of the underdeterminacy of the original meaning or because you can't even figure out original meaning without doing some normative judgment about the level of generality at which to read the law, or because you know ignoring morality entirely would guarantee or would make it likelier that our court decisions are undermining the common good when the whole point of the whole legal system is to promote the common good. For any of those reasons, judges have to consult substantive moral judgments at least a lot of the time when they're doing constitutional um, cases. I think that that um, are just, I hear your question mostly as a sociological one. And from that perspective, I'd say that argument did not have a lot of purchase with originalists who ha- who really did care about originalism for methodological reasons and not because of outcomes they were hoping for, who really thought, no, this is just what the rule of law requires. If we, we don't like the outcomes that um, an originalist procedure spits out, then we have to change the law through amendments or, uh, well, through amendment. Um, then there were others who... who did think no look if it's if it's constantly producing bad outcomes then either the rule of law benefits don't outweigh those costs or um maybe it's it's actually that we have reason to think it's not serving rule of law benefits anyway or something like that but that again as a sociological matter i think that view had a lot more steam at the end of the 2020 term than it does now so that was the term in which the court in june medical upheld or struck down an abortion regulation in which in Bostock, it held that Title VII, which forbids employment discrimination based on sex, also covers employment discrimination based on gender identity or sexual orientation, which was seen by some textualists as, um, as a, a bad application of the view um, and as activist in its own way. So it was a case, it was a term in which there was some disillusionment anyway, some thinking the court was doing bad originalism and textualism, some thinking maybe it was doing them well, but leading to terrible outcomes. At the end of this term, things look pretty different. So the court has, in Dobbs, done what basically the the biggest assignment that originalism had set for itself, which is correcting what what most originalists saw as the biggest distortion or deviation from the original meaning of the Constitution in Roe. It has also undermined what were widely seen as non-originalist or anti-originalist precedents in the Establishment Clause context when it uh, finally declared dead the so-called lemon test for figuring out Establishment Clause violations, and that, that happened in the in the Bremerton case, the case of the praying coach. Um, so I think those those changes, whether whether you see them as better applications of originalism and therefore better for the rule of law, and that's why you cared about originalism, or whether you cared more about substantive outcomes 
and think, well, now we're tacking in that direction, in the right direction on that front. You know, the 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 motivation to go toward common constitutionalism is a bit weaker. That said, I do think that the general discussion it has sparked, including the question about let's take a closer look at our own history and figure out exactly what role natural law, moral reasoning did or didn't play in judicial opinions until the day before yesterday. I think that will stick. And I think it will prompt good and fruitful um, discussions that look at the history and that might shape people's views, even if all they care about is the history. If they think, well, look, the, this this kind of natural law reasoning should matter only if it's itself rooted in our history. So common good constitutionalism has been characterized by many of its critics and maybe even some of its adherents as a sort of living constitutionalism for the right. And for the past 40 years or so, living a constitutionalism as done by the left has been associated with illegitimacy. On the one hand, I think that having common good constitutionalism as a sort of foil to a more procedure-based originalism is good in constructing originalism's legitimacy because it shows that the methodology is at least trying to be substance neutral. My question is, though, to what extent do you think this matters? Because as we've seen over the past term, even if a case tries to be as methodological as possible, tries to be thorough in its historical understanding, that opinion will still be deemed as illegitimate by those who don't agree with its policy outcomes. I think a great example is after West Virginia EPA, the case limiting EPA's power to regulate carbon emissions, Senator Ed Markey put out a press release saying that this court was completely illegitimate, that this case was just conservative activism. Um, And of course, that case turned on the use of the major questions doctrine. Now, in 2015, in King v. Burwell, uh, when the Supreme Court also invoked the major questions doctrine to uphold the Affordable Care Act, Senator Markey put out a press release saying how wonderful the court was and how great of an opinion it was. So it seems to me that this question of legitimacy as seen by public opinion is not going to turn on the thoroughness of the reasoning or methodological inputs, but only on the substantive outputs. Yeah, um, it's hard to say. So with the EPA case, you might think some people thought it's illegitimate because they thought that it was unfaithful to the court's professed textualism, that the kind of substantive canon that the major question doctrine is can't really be understood as a proxy for or a way of figuring out the original meaning of the text at the time of of its enactment. And so it's a departure from the court's professed philosophy in the direction that the court would prefer as a policy matter. Therefore, it's illegitimate. Um, some will say, no, look, I, I mean, I, I suspect if legitimacy means do the people think that the court is doing law, the problem is that in most cases, the people, meaning 
the general public, so not not lawyers or law professors and not even people who read SCOTUS blog, but just people who read their local or national newspapers, will not know what the legal question was in any detail, will not know any detail about the legal arguments. They will just know the political valence of the policy outcome. So EPA gets to do something about climate change or doesn't get to do something about climate change. And maybe if legitimacy means, do do the people think the court is doing law, in that setting just comes down to, do the people think there's a suspicious pattern in the politics of these outcomes where they come up Republican or they come up Democrat friendly too often? Um, And if that's the world we're stuck in, then I think you're right that the exact legal moves and interpretive methodologies don't matter. What matters is the ratio of liberal friendly to conservative friendly policy outcomes in these high profile cases. There might still be some exceptions. So in Dobbs, obviously, there's a political valence to the outcome, uh, a huge one. But it's also the case that if your average member of the general public knew anything about the court besides the policy outcome here. It would know that the court identifies as originalist. And if it knows anything about originalism, it knows that originalism thinks Roe is bunk. So this might have been one of the few cases where people knew enough about the law to think that if the court went uh, the other way, it would have not been doing law. And so it might have seemed illegitimate to at least some people who would have preferred that outcome as a policy matter. So I, I suspect that you're right that in the mine run of cases, people's familiarity with the law and the legal arguments are sufficiently dim that all they know is whether there are too many, quote unquote, too many conservative or too many liberal outcomes. I think you just hit on something really important. And I think Rob alluded to it too, but it doesn't doesn't matter where really where you're coming from on the political spectrum to recognize that something is probably deeply wrong with our political economy if the Supreme Court's decision on the interpretation of Section 7411D of the Clean Air Act is actually a referendum on the legitimacy of Article 3 of the United States Constitution. And so I guess there's kind of a meta question here. It really has very little to do with law or, or constitutional thought and really a lot more to do with, with how we get by with people that we disagree with. And you wrote a, a really great book with, with John Corvino and, and you guys all noted and Ryan Anderson, where, where you noted in the very beginning that you just disagree on, on the issues. And you had done a lot of talking about religious freedom and free exercise uh, across the country and, and listened to each other respectfully. And this is really a meta question, but one that I think is really pressing. How do you think through talking to and, and arguing with people that you disagree with on really important matters of, of constitutional law or your public policy uh, in, in your professional life and in your intellectual life? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, the very beginning of it prompts me to add one quick addendum to my last answer first. I don't think that the court should be changing its behavior based on its fear that people will think it's not doing law. Um, if that requires it's going against what it thinks the law requires. So um, I, I, what I was really describing was a kind of dilemma that the court might be in. If the court it should be concerned or should be worried about people thinking that it's political, but the only way out of that is to be political, that's a problem. Um, on the general question, I think that, I guess there are a few things. I have, yeah, some of my closest and deepest and richest and most rewarding friendships are with people who disagree very passionately on the things I, some of the things I care about most. And one thing is that 
those are always in the context of a broader friendship. Um, so those are cases where we know each other, always from real life, not Twitter, where we are, um, you know, we care about each other's families, each other's careers. Um, we talk about and share things that aren't politics or the legal or moral or political issues that divide us. And then within that setting, it's easier to see even your debates about those issues as actually contributing to your friendship for a couple of reasons. One is you don't doubt the goodwill of the other person or their intelligence or their sincerity. So some of the harms of these conversations just don't show up. But second, you can under you, you both care about the truth and you both think you could be wrong. And so you both think that debating these issues is an opportunity, not a threat. It's a possible it gives you the chance either to sh- to better understand the issue at the very least and to change your mind if you turn out to be wrong about it. And that kind of vulnerability and trust is really only possible in the context of friendship. Um, a friendship that that has a broader span than just these debates. But when when those things are shared, as I said, the debates can actually build the friendship up. And that's been my experience in the best versions of this. But again, all of those started in real life. And that's one reason that I, even though I'm on Twitter, mostly I lurk every once in a while, I post something uh, that I've written or that someone else has and that I'm interested in. Um, I don't have debates with people I haven't met in real life. I think that one of the reasons for this lack of dialogue that we've seen certainly here at Yale Law School and perhaps at other schools and around the country as a whole is that this sort of academic skepticism that you mentioned doesn't really exist, that people are so set in their views that they're just not willing to hear the other side because it's automatically written off as ridiculous. And maybe this sort of substance-based reasoning is what living a constitutionalism and common good constitutionalism is also falling victim to, and that it comes in with its ends that will justify its means. What strategies do you think would be productive in, be it at the law school setting or as a body politic as a whole, what would be productive in trying to get us away from that mindset and towards a more academically skeptical approach? Um, One thing is that it helps a lot to be forced to interact with people who disagree with you and to, to interact with them uh, outside the context of fighting over these issues. So intellectual diversity in any given community is really important, instrumentally at least, for that purpose. If you're not, if you don't, and it doesn't matter if you're on the left or the right or whatever other classification, if you don't regularly interact with people who deeply disagree with you, it's a lot easier to form unfair assumptions and stereotypes about them, their intelligence, their goodwill, etc. Um, and those are always disrupted when you're you are forced to to hang out with them. Um, So I guess in the law school context, obviously this is a self-serving point to make, so grain of salt, but uh, I do think intellectual diversity helps. On the, more generally, I think one thing we have to do, and this is a big collective action problem I don't know how to solve, is that we have to stop punishing people we generally agree with for 
disagreeing or with some particular tenet of the set of views that unite us, or even for questioning the views, or even for entertaining a counter argument, or for saying that a counter argument is good, right? So it's very, um, when Roe came down, there were liberal lions like Ely and Hart and uh, and Tribe who who said, "Look, I like abortion policy. I'm, I think it's it's." That's the just policy to have, but I think Rose reasoning was bunk. Very hard to find anything comparable in the wake of Dobbs, and I think partly that's because the social costs of seeming to step out of line in that way are enormous now, even relative to what they were back then. Um, so that's something that you know that's a matter of self policing that everybody, every individual, and every sub community, ideologically speaking, has to do for themselves. Um, is just to make sure to be um, to not punish intellectual independence in that way. And I think the other thing is that we have to have maybe the the the, the easiest next step is to not to think to ourselves, oh, I could be wrong and this person in this conversation could convince me that I'm wrong. But at least to think I have the, uh, even a conversation that doesn't convince me to flip my mind completely on an issue, can be productive. It can help me understand the issues better. It can help me understand my own position better, understand what's really motivating me. It can help me suss out good versus bad arguments for views I already have or for contrary views for that matter. It can help me understand my crazy uncle who I disagree with, but I can't have this quality of intellectual conversation with. You know, I can come to see his his view better after having it. Maybe even at the, you know, the, the stingiest reason to uh, stingiest possible motivation, but still motivation would be if I don't know the other side's arguments well, and I hope to to advocate for my views in the public setting in some way or in public service or in the nonprofit world or otherwise, then I'm going to do a worse job at serving the cause I believe in because I don't know because I'll, I'll be brittle intellectually and I won't know what's motivating the other side, and I won't know what the best counter arguments are. So there's any number of instrumental, at least, reasons that we can use, I think, to motivate ourselves to have the kinds of conversations that start to erode the dynamics you're talking about. I don't think there's any better note to end on than that. Sharif, thank you so much for for joining us for this hour, and, and thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you.